Open God's holy word to the 30th Psalm, the 30th Psalm, a Psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Yahweh, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Yahweh, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Yahweh, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to Yahweh, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Yahweh, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Yahweh, I cry. And to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Yahweh, and be merciful to me. O Yahweh, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Yahweh my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray... That you forgive us of our arrogance in finding confidence and security in the gifts that come from your hand rather than in you. And I pray that your mercy would turn us from such things. To find delight in that you, our God, dwell in our midst in covenant love. And so, turn our hearts towards you in praise and thanksgiving that that is so in Christ. In his name, amen. Set forward three preliminaries before we get into the meat of this psalm. First, we need to beware of misidentifying this psalm. You don't want to mistake the salt as the sugar, otherwise, you'll find you've baked a biscuit when what you wanted was a cake. We've encountered a variety of different types of psalms as we've gone through this most recent little 
survey, and we've seen psalms of lament that contain elements of confidence, psalms of confidence that contain elements of lament, as both of those often do, and then a psalm of praise. So which one of these would you fit this current psalm into? Which one best categorizes this psalm? And you mustn't make the mistake of of seeing all the elements of lament in here and thinking that it must be one of those that contains lament. No, the psalm as a whole is a psalm of thanksgiving and praise. It is a thanksgiving psalm. David is recalling past laments while giving present praise. The the lament elements that are here are reflected on. They are not being done in the present. And so this psalm is sweet. It's a cake. Bitter elements have gone into its making, but the dominant note here is joy. The second is to note that parallelism can happen in regards to stanzas as well as verses. So parallelism is the dominant rhyme structure of the Hebrew poetic expression. It uh, is a rhyme of thought more than of words. You have a clear example of how it works in verse 3. Yahweh, you've brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. So the same thing is being said using different words. And what What I want you to see is that this kind of parallelism, this kind of rhyme structure can happen with stanzas as well as verses. So this psalm has two stanzas, first one, one through five, second one, six through twelve. And in both of them, the same thing is being said using different words that fill out and complement one another. And then finally, and most extensively, so don't, get, don't be alarmed whenever this one has gone on for quite some time, but most extensively, we need to settle that this heading isn't multiple choice. A psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. This is both a psalm of David and it is a psalm written for the dedication of the temple. Indeed, further than that, it's a psalm of David written for the dedication of the temple. It wasn't posthumously ascribed as one for the dedication of the temple. That was the intent whenever David penned it. And yes, of course, we know Solomon, David's son, is the one who constructed the temple, and he did so after David's death. And so some come to the psalm and they say, well, temple, and rightly so, can be translated house or palace. That's the idea with the word. Indeed, true. And so they'll say that David wrote this whenever he had the tent erected, which was the house, the palace, the place where Yahweh is king dwelled among them. Whenever he had that tent erected, whenever he brought the ark to Jerusalem, that's what this psalm was about. Or they'll say, this was written for the dedication of his, David's palace. And they do this because they think of, that speaking of David writing this for the dedication of the temple is like mentioning Honest Abe's speech that he gave at the dedication of the Lincoln Memorial. That, that doesn't work. But is it any stretch of the intellect 
to imagine that the same David who prepared such vast material for the construction of the temple could prepare 12 verses for the dedication of that temple. Most of the Psalms come with headings. And I take it that those headings are inspired script because we see the authors of the New Testament using the authorial, the, the, the authorial, uh, um, whenever the psalm says who the author is, we see the New Testament recognizing those authors as we see in the headings. These headings are in the original manuscripts. Now, some smarty pants scholars want to think that they were later accretions, but uh, Paul says otherwise. So we have these headings with most of the psalms, but very few of them ever mention any historical event that they're attached to. And I take it that whenever they do, it's significant. We, we should be alert as to why it is that the Holy Spirit, in inspiring that psalm, wanted us to be associating it with a specific historical event. And all this enforces a principle that I, this is where I want to elaborate some on. And this principle is that the best way to read your Bible is with a whole lot of Bible floating in your noggin. The best way to swim is by being in water. And the best way to read your Bible is by having read your Bible. There are too many Christians who are, they just have their feet in. They just want some cool refreshment. They just want enough water for their comfort and their ease. That's that's the majority, I'm I'm afraid. But then there are a few who they just want to analyze it from the concrete. They just want to run their test. They don't ever get in the water, but they want to tell everyone whether or not the water is safe. They've analyzed it. Their opinion determines how you should then uh, view the water. Those are the kind that tell us that David couldn't have written this psalm. But if you swim in the Bible, then you can swim the Bible. You know how to do it. Rather, you're carried along by the current more than anything. You recognize the current. Let me put it this way. Every time you read the Bible, you're better equipped to read the Bible. Because you're reading it in light of the Bible itself. What happens is you're reading this and you're remembering that and that is what helps you make sense of this or this way. All the nasty, stagnant stump water that is accumulated up here that's the stuff of your own conjuring and the stuff of this world is being uh, purged out by the washing of the water of the Word. And so that your thinking is more in line with with reality each time you come around to the Word. And so that being so, with this heading, let's recall several that's so that we can read this. We have to go all the way, I think, to really get this to the beginning of First and Second Samuel. And First and Second Samuel transition us not only from a time of the judges to the time of the kings... They transition us from the tent to the temple. Those things coincide. And the book opens pretty quickly 
with this battle where the Philistines have captured the ark. And you remember Phineas' wife is with child. She goes into labor and she names the child Ichabod, meaning no glory, explaining the reason for the name, the glory has departed from Israel. Well, pretty soon, out of fear, the Philistines return the ark. But it's peculiar that whenever they return it, the ark stays at the house of Abinadab for the entire reign of Saul. And then, it's pretty early in David's reign that he purposes to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And he has a tent erected to it uh, for it. So think of this. It remains in the same place for all the reign of Saul. But then David, a man after God's own heart, wants to bring the ark to Jerusalem. First time he does so, the ark is being transported on a cart, just like the Philistines and their ignorance had done. You remember Uzzah stretches out his hand to stop the ark from falling off the cart and he's struck dead. And that puts a damper on the festivities that were going on that day. But then, as it's, we're stopping here, it's at the house of Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom is blessed. And so David again intends to bring it to Jerusalem. And this time, though, it's very clear, it is emphatic again and again in the Chronicles account, 1 Chronicles 15, that he's doing so as Yahweh had instructed. The priests are going to carry this. They're going to carry it with poles. They're going to do it as Yahweh has told us to. So they bring the ark to Jerusalem. and, And in both instances, David is rejoicing and dancing and celebrating and throngs of Israel are joining in this celebration as it's being brought to Jerusalem. And after this, we see David speak of his desire to build Yahweh a house. And what we have in the wake of that is the Davidic covenant for Samuel 7. And God tells David, You will not build me a house, I will build your house. I will establish your throne forever and you will have a son and he will build me a house. 2 Samuel chapter 8, chapter following that, we see David's uh, a handful of military conquests that are mentioned. But what's peculiar is that the spoils of those victories, David says he dedicates to Yahweh. Now be made clear what that meant is that he dedicated them for the construction of that temple. Same order unfolds in Second Chronicles, for, and, excuse me, First Chronicles 17 and 18. Same order, same emphasis. And then later, after David has enjoyed many victories, and he's at peace, he foolishly rebels as he is incited by Satan. To number Israel, that grand sin of taking a census. But the sin is in the arrogance of why he does so. Because it's not a census where he's wanting to get a read of the diverse demographic of the people that he rules over. The the sole 
The sole demographic that David's interested in in the census is it is a census of the fighting force of the nation. He wants to get a feel for his military might. The results of the census, as Joab reports them, are there are 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. This is an expression of pride, arrogance, self-reliance. And for that sin, you remember that 70,000 men, men of Israel, fell in a plague. We're told that in, in this, David looks up to see the angel of Yahweh standing with sword drawn, ready to bring it down on Jerusalem. And David sees this and he pleads, do not strike the sheep. I have sinned. And he's instructed then to go to the place where this angel stood over the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite and there to build an altar and make sacrifice to Yahweh. And the anger of Yahweh having been averted from Jerusalem, do you remember what David then says? 1 Chronicles 22.1 Here shall be the house of Yahweh God and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. That's how 2 Samuel closes. So do you see what's happened in 1 and 2 Samuel? You go from the judges to God's king. And it ends with that king intending to build a house for Yahweh. You go to Chronicles. It's even more emphatic. Because Chronicles ends not just with David, with, with this instance of, of the census being taken and, and this uh, the site for the temple coming to the fore. Um, it's made explicit in Chronicles, but Chronicles goes on to talk about all the preparations that David makes for the construction of the temple and the charge that he gives to Solomon. 1 Chronicles 22, 13-16 Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. With great pains, I have provided for the house of Yahweh 100,000 talents of gold, a million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond weighing, for there is so much of it. Timber and stone too I have provided. To these you must add. You have an abundance of workmen, stonecutters, masons, carpenters, and all kinds of craftsmen without number, skilled in working gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Arise and work. Yahweh be with you. So again, if David acquired a hundred thousand talents of gold for the construction of the temple, is it any stretch to think he then composed twelve verses for its dedication? And do you not see in this a man after God's own heart? Do you not see, as we've, as we've gone through this handful of psalms, did you notice that the temple was mentioned in every one of them? And David's longing for the God who dwells there in covenant love with his people? That then gives you some idea 
He couldn't build it, but he anticipated it. And in doing so, you get the sense of the thanksgiving and the praise and the joy that fill this psalm. David's purpose in this psalm, verse 1, is to extol, to lift up Yahweh. This is not a lament. It's a psalm of praise. And the basis for this praise is that Yahweh drew him up. He wants to lift up Yahweh because Yahweh in praise because Yahweh has lifted him up in deliverance. And this psalm will make it clear that he, he, he wants to do this. He, he wants, uh, he's not, he's praising God because Yahweh's not let his foes rejoicing over him. That was part of the drawing up. But in this instance, David isn't being delivered from his enemy's attack, but his enemy's ridicule. This isn't like David was in another fight, another battle with his enemies, and it looks like his enemies might gain the upper hand. David's down on the floor, and then God raises him up, delivering the KO punch to the enemy. That's not what's happening here. David here has a training injury. He's at home. He's at peace. He has a training injury. And the foes are looking in and they get word of this. And David says, I don't want them to rejoice in light of this. And because that didn't happen, David is now extolling and praising Yahweh. It will also be clear as we go through the psalm that this is a godly prayer. Because if David's enemies gloat, Yahweh is blasphemed. And then verse 2 takes us back in time. O Yahweh my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. He cried to Yahweh, and the results were that he was healed, and he was brought up from Sheol, verse 3, and he was restored to life. Some here stumble because they start looking for an instance where David was sick. When, when did he compose this? When, what, what was the occasion? And so they start looking for an instance where David was sick, and I say that's about as futile as looking for the pit that he fell into. Um, poetry is rich in metaphor anyway, and whenever you recognize the parallelism, it's probably that the pit and the being drawn up, and the sickness all coincide, and this has more to do with a spiritual kind of deliverance and help than anything else. And whenever you consider what we just did, whenever we're reading this in light of all of that, and we're recalling all this, this scenario that relates to the temple in David's life, I think the clearest instance, whenever this would be, is that time whenever he numbered the people and the plague had come upon the nation. I think that will be made even more clear in the second stanza. So David having recalled his deliverance. He now calls upon the saints to sing praise and give thanks to Yahweh. Verse 4. Sing praises to Yahweh, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Praise is always invitational. When we praise something, we want to bring others into our joy in that thing. But something deeper and bigger is going on here because as fares the king, so fares the kingdom. 
King and kingdom are in unison. Mercy shown to the king is shown to the kingdom. And nowhere is that more apparent than wherever this plague was coming upon the nation for David's sin. And so as David provided a basis for his own personal praise, I will extol you because you've drawn me up. Now he provides a basis for this national praise that he's calling for, wanting to lead the people into. For, verse 5, his anger is but for a moment. And his favor is for a lifetime. I think this makes it clear that whatever David was facing was a disciplinary act of God. It wasn't the attack of the enemies. Although that could be used as God's discipline against David. In this instance, it was clearly and directly Yahweh with whom he's dealing. His anger may last for a moment. But his favor is for a lifetime. The king's deliverance is the people's hope. And he's been delivered. And so he calls upon the nation to sing. Whenever he sinned in that census, he was given three choices. 2 Samuel 24, Go and say to David, Thus says Yahweh, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So all of these are Yahweh's doing. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your hand? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And David replies, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of Yahweh, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. Now it's already clear that all of these are Yahweh's hand. But what David wants, does not any child in discipline not want this? He wants it. As directly as possible. Don't let any intermediaries play in this. Want to deal with Yahweh as directly as possible. And as. This is not in the explicitly said. But I think it's understood. As quickly as possible. Three years. Three months. Or three days. Let me. That's what. That's what's desired. I think it expresses this. What's desired in the discipline of our God is we want our God. We want the discipline over as quickly as possible and be restored in fellowship unto our God. The chastisement in every instance, regardless of the choice, notice this. This is true. The chastisement had an expiration date. You might have intermediary persons involved in whatever kind of discipline is coming to you and it's not up to you to figure all that out. You can't. The secret things belong to the Lord. But regardless, whatever kind of disciplinary act comes upon you, regardless, it has an expiration date. But His favor is for a lifetime. Because it's rooted in that covenant that he's made. 
And so can you see why David, after having been delivered in this way, would call upon the nation to sing, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. All our suffering is ordained by our sovereign God for our good, even whenever that suffering is directly the disciplinary anger of our God that we face. It's still for our good. His hand of discipline is always measured and limited, but His hand of mercy and grace is infinite and eternal. And further, for His children, His anger as it comes to us as discipline, always is His hand of discipline is always in His hand of mercy for us. It is His mercy. It is His grace. Now the second stanza opens by more clearly in some ways rehashing David's situation. Because here we learn that it's his pride that has led to this discipline, this anger that's been coming forward that he's, he's crying out to be delivered from. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Pride is a high road to a low place. David expresses his arrogance in his prosperity. There's nothing wrong with prosperity in and of itself. In this instance, the prosperity that David is enjoying is the blessing of God. We should not repent of our blessings. We should repent of our sinful heart that makes idols out of those blessings. David's problem wasn't blessedness without, but sin within. And yet, nonetheless... If we know ourselves, we need to know that prosperity is an opportunity for sin. It's a temptation to so many of us. Spurgeon comments, when all his foes were quiet and his rebellious son dead and buried, then was the time of peril. Many a vessel founders in a calm. No temptation is so bad as tranquility. See, pride can rail against God in poverty. In anger. But then more subtly, you can just forget God in prosperity. The specific danger that's dealt with here is that the soul that leans on God in the lean years is now leaning on self in the fat years. Here's the warning that God gave in relation to His blessings to His people. Take care lest you forget Yahweh your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. And you forget Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that He might humble you and test you. 
to do what is good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember Yahweh your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget Yahweh your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that Yahweh makes to perish before you. So you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of Yahweh your God. Whenever David says, I shall never be moved. The sin isn't in what he said. The sin is in why he said it. Psalm 16, David says basically the same thing there. But his eyes are on something other than his wealth. Psalm 16, 8, I have set Yahweh always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. This psalm, as he's reflecting, his eyes looked at his military might and the, the prosperity of the nation. In the 16th psalm, it was Yahweh as set before his eyes. It was the reason for his confidence. And that helps you understand what's being said at the end of verse 7. Well, let me, let me cover this first. The, the blessedness that David enjoys comes by the favor of God, by God's grace. David's mountain, his kingdom, stood strong by God's favor. Psalm 2.6, Yahweh declares, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So all this is because of God. And then he says, here's the discipline. You hid your face. I was dismayed. The chief thing that smarts is the hidden face of God. This is how you know whenever discipline's being rightly received and working is whenever the chief smart is that you sense God's face is hidden. If blessedness means as the priest blessed Israel this, may Yahweh bless you and keep you. May Yahweh make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May Yahweh lift up the light of His countenance upon you and give you peace. If that's blessedness, then the greatest despair, the greatest curse you could possibly sense would be that God would turn His face away from you. But note that David is only sensing the hiddenness of God's face. God's face isn't turned, it's hidden. He is being disciplined, he is not forsaken. Whenever God's children look to the gifts of his hand, God will use those hands to wield the rod of discipline to drive us back to longing for His face. And out of this discipline, David pleads, verses 8 and 10, 
He cries out for mercy, for help. Hear, O Yahweh, and be merciful to me. O Yahweh, be my helper. And the basis for this is given in these, this series of questions. Verse 9, what profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Now the idea isn't that, God is, that David's coming before God and saying, listen, you are going to lose an incredible minstrel continually singing your praises if you strike me down. This is not the lead singer telling the band, you're nothing without me. This isn't the band coming to the record company and saying, your company won't sell anything if you don't sign me. This isn't God, David coming to God and saying, listen, I am your chief PR manager. I made you and I can break you. David's plea here is not rooted in who David is, but in who God is. In covenant, he has said, your throne is my throne. You are my people. And if David's plea is this, if I am struck down, your name is blasphemed. Because you in covenant have wed yourself, as it were, to me. He says the same thing in a different way in Psalm 6. Turn, O Yahweh, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Remember, that's Hesed, that idea is wed to covenant. For your covenant, for the sake of your covenant mercy, redeem me. And he goes on, he says, For in death there's no remembrance of you in Sheol who will give you praise. If I'm forsaken, your covenant name is blasphemed, it's emptied of meaning. Your, covenant, your name, Yahweh, means that who you are, you are for your people. That your, your love and mercy endures. And that you've promised, in particular, in the covenant made with David, your throne will be established forever. So do you see that David's confidence in this is not in himself, it's in who God has revealed himself to be. One Puritan writer said something like, God is fond of his own handwriting. When we bring our prayers to him, let's do so in light of his promises and revelation of who he is. Or another Puritan, uh, Thomas Brooks, put it something like this, God loves to be sued according to his own laws. Bring your case before him, your prayers, your petitions before him in light of who he has said he is, his promises his covenant because such verse 11 is the prayer that God answers you have turned for me my mourning into dancing you've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness do not sense as though it's David is dancing before the ark as it's being brought to the city all over again He's clothed with joy and gladness rejoicing before Yahweh and I think that image is conjured up because the same reason for his joy as the ark is being brought to Jerusalem is the same basis, grounds, that he's rejoicing now as he's considering this psalm written for the dedication of the temple. In light of the averted anger of God from the nation, and in this instance it's peculiar, sometimes we see whenever king and priest try to mingle, 
that goes really wrong, like Uzziah. The only instances where we see something otherwise are in that Psalm 110 where it's promised the, the, the king, the Messiah, the son of David, who David refers to as Lord, is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But then here, you remember it's David who's told to purchase the site, build an altar there. The king is acting as a mediator. And he's pled, not them, but me. So as he's, as he's contemplating all this, you see this mourning turned into dancing. He's loosed from his sackcloth of weeping repentantly before God, and now he's clothed with gladness. And the God who so clothed David with this gladness, and this gladness, I believe, is parallel with his glory, He's clothed him with this gladness, this glory, that David may sing Yahweh's praise. See, David's blessedness now has its proper end. Not in pride, but in giving glory unto God. David's exaltation is God exalting himself. And who he is, who he's revealed himself to be. And for this reason, David intends to give thanks to Yahweh forever. We would be remiss if we didn't reflect on the third stanza of this psalm. The third stanza comes not whenever the son of David, Solomon, builds a temple. The third stanza comes whenever the son of David builds the temple. The third stanza is these first two recalled in light of the New Testament. Because if we're going to read this psalm rightly, we need to not only read this in light of the that that's behind this psalm, but the that that's in front of this psalm. We need to wade in the shallows of the preparatory Old Testament and then dive into the deeps of the New Testament fulfillment of everything that's spoken of here. Our Lord spoke of the temple of His body being destroyed, but then rebuilt three days later, John 2. In Acts, we're told that the 16th Psalm spoke of, David, spoke of Jesus whenever David sang, Therefore my heart is glad... And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Here I will not be shaken. For because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Do you see the exact same things here? I'm rejoicing and I'm not going to be shaken because you've delivered me from the pit. And if all that's true of Jesus in the 16th Psalm, the son of David... It's just as true that this is more true of Jesus than it is David in the 30th Psalm. The foes of our Lord were not permitted to gloat once the temple had been crushed because three days later, it was anew. So can you see that the, uh, the foes 
of of David, thinking Yahweh's abandoned them. Ichabod, no glory. He's not with his people anymore. But then, out of the wake of all that discipline, the site for the temple is established. So the foes of our Lord think they have defeated him when he rises three days later more glorious with authority. Not just as sovereign Lord over all, which he has eternally, but as Redeemer to make all things new and do so with righteousness and justice intact. Unlike David, the situation was not that the people were suffering because of the king's sin, but with Jesus, the king suffered because of the people's sin. And he pleads, in essence, do not strike the sheep, strike the shepherd. Though the sin was all theirs. And with Christ. He was shown. No. Mercy. The sword. Was not. Averted. It fell on him. In full. Force. It wasn't that God's face. Was simply hidden. But it was turned from his son. As is not in the sense of, ooh, God can't look at sin as the way that's often presented. It was turned from the son in the sense that God forsook the son. And abandoned him as he was cursed and bore wrath for our sins. But the weeping of the night of the crucifixion was followed by the joy of the morn of resurrection. The king's glorification was the father's glorification. And those of his people to whom he was wed as well. Jesus' prayer takes David's here to the crescendo levels whenever he asks, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal, eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. And then Jesus goes on in that prayer to say, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. King and people are one. 
So may we extol our Father for the glory and honor He's bestowed on the King. Because His exaltation is our redemption and our deliverance and our glory. And may our glory thus sing His praise, His honor. Sing praise and thanks because though His anger is but for a moment, but His favor is forever. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Saints, in the deliverance of our Lord Jesus The Father has turned our mourning into dancing. He's clothed us with gladness in clothing us with the righteousness of Christ. The glory of the Son is our glory. And all this glory is unto the praise of our triune God. God is our Father in the Son through the Spirit. Let us return thanks. Forever. Let's pray. Father, may we repent of our pride. And that looks as simple as being in touch with reality of what's happened in Christ so that in our humility we express thanks. And render praise to you. It's the simple antidote for our pride. For our arrogance and our self-reliance. To look to you in all your glory and redemption. And to give thanks. And to sing praise. So do that now in us, Father, we pray. By your Spirit, to the glory of, of your Son. And thus to you. In Christ's name, amen.